0: Hello, legends, and welcome to today's show. As always, Catching Up with Cub is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. Today, we're catching up with Cub member Paul Hotz. Paul is one of the most prolific figures in the Australian uh, rag trade uh, and garment industry. Having uh, successfully accomplished one of the largest sales of a private company in the industry, Uh, In Australia, Paul has also been an icon in uh, the business side of the Australian boxing world and has had some incredible life lessons um, experienced um, through two financial crashes of 87 and 08, uh, as well as um, other life lessons that, believe me, uh, is something that we all need to hear at this time. Uh, The lessons you're going to take from this conversation are going to make it probably the best use of an hour that you're going to give uh, your time to at the moment. I, I was speechless after it. I actually felt like I was in a, a professional uh, interview or something like that. The lessons that came from this, this incredible man were mind-blowing and I just enjoy the show. <laughs> and we're live. Welcome to the show, Mr. Hotz. How are you, sir?
1: Really good, thank you.
0: I am quite possibly more excited to have you on the show than I have anyone else. Not to mention, not to say that the others weren't incredible, but but I know that you're one of the uh, most experienced and accomplished business people that I've uh, I've ever met. And so I'm very honored to not just have you as a member of the club, but also to have your time here today to to be sharing your knowledge with all the amazing right. listeners we have. Great. And uh, you've been a member for how long now?
1: A yeah, year, nine, nine, no, eight or nine months. And uh, have you enjoyed membership? I think it's great. You know, my stage where I'm retired and have been retired for nine or ten years, I feel like I um, I had time on my hands and how did I want to generate my experiences in the industry that I've been associated for with, for 35 years uh, with people who could be like-minded and would need some guidance and assistance to work off myself and my experiences. So I um, followed uh, the club in LinkedIn and thought, you know, maybe I can join up with a club and pick out or they pick out for me some people that might need um, some advice, some guidance, someone who's been through the highs and lows of business in Australia. And I uh, joined up. And it's been wonderful. I've, the team have used me in cons- in certain uh, situations where I've met up with some very interesting people. Uh, some have uh, felt that they could use me in a broad sense. Others have asked me to sit on their board, which I'm enjoying. And I enjoy actually being a mentor to, to young guys who really having a go and never ever experienced what I experienced in my history of being involved in the rat trade in Australia. And have you had a bit of fun as
0: well, met some a, met some good lo- friends?
1: Lots of fun and I've also been inspired by some of the, the incredible knowledge that members of the club have Amazing. about many things and I enjoy sharing with them. I felt like it's put some purpose back into my life because of the fact that I'm actually able to help some people that might find that I can help them to achieve what they have set out in their business program.
0: I love to hear that and I can assure you people very much give value meeting you. We, we, we always have, We always have been, I mean, they always let us know. So uh, again, such a privilege and such an honor. And Paul, before we get into the current situation, you were telling me before a lot of your thoughts on it and I, I, I really want to replicate what we just spoke about. Sure. But before we do, I'd love for, to paint a bit of a picture, maybe a bit of an overview of of uh, your career and and um, and um, I guess accomplishments or experiences you'd call them um today because you 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 were very prolific in in the boxing the boxing world, the business side of the boxing world. You uh, were also uh, very prolific in the rag trade, and and from what I understand, had one one of the largest private sales of a clothing is it a clothing company you'd call yeah. it. Yeah, um, and so you've got this distributor. Co- distributor and you've had some huge life experiences. So I guess do you want to just give us a quick summary?
1: Um, uh, I came to Australia from South Africa uh, in 1979. I just felt that I was going to be encumbered by the military commitments that uh, South Africa Army was putting on people like myself. Um, and after doing two tours of duty on South African border, uh, one in, in Angola and the other one in Mozambique, I realised that I have to get out. I was 24 years old. I had a, a garment industry experience in South Africa in Cape Town. So I, um, I was able to get into Australia with immigration. Was your family in the, in the garment industry? No, they weren't. They weren't in the fashion industry. My dad was, uh, we come from a small country town just outside of Johannesburg a very ultra-conservative right-wing town Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I I just didn't like it either. So I decided to um, go out and explore opportunities in the world. Before, I wasn't ever going to do it. I had no encumbrance. I arrived in Australia uh, with $700 and I actually didn't know one person when I arrived. (laughs) Wow. All I I had was um, when I arrived I was a second dan in karate and I got the opportunity to start uh, teaching when I came home. that's the first job I did. Uh, as, as, as a karate teacher? As was a karate instructor, sure. yeah. And I, um, I really loved that and I got to know people. And my, my desire at that stage was always to get back into the garment industry. Um, I got married uh, when I was 27. My wife was a, um, an internationally recognised textile designer and she encouraged me to get back into the ray trade in Australia. I decided to source out what area would be the best to enter with low finance, with low capital, um, and I found that the budget end was going to be the easiest part for me to get into the industry because no one really wanted to do it in those days. Why is that? Because it was unattractive. You know, you made garments that would retail for $7, you made garments that would retail for $9. It was very difficult to do, but it was an industry taken up by some elderly gentlemen who made a lot of money out of supplying coals and wools. And I thought I had an avenue to, um, to get in and navigate a path in the industry. Um, Coles and Woolworths were my first customers. They gave me great opportunities to perform, to, to um, work with them. In providing uh, garments to in, Coles and Woolworths? To their stores, yeah. yeah. My problem was I didn't have any money. So I had to work away where – and that's one of the reasons why I chose the budget end because I worked out that if I could um, get credit from my fabric suppliers for 30 days – and if I could get credit for, for 90 days, sorry, and if I could get credit from my sewers for 30 days I could get in those days Coles and Woolworths would pay you in seven days and take two and a half percent discount. So I figured that if I was able to get Coles and to, Become a major supplier to Coles and Woolworths, I was going to have money coming into me in seven days, and I only had to fulfill <laughs> my opportunities at 90 days. Yeah. So I had a, a business that was actually self funded, but it was the support of the structures that existed in Coles and Woolworths. And how did you think of that? How, did you sit down yourself and, Absolutely. and just. Absolutely. I had to find a way. I didn't want someone to finance me. I wanted to be able to be independent. Um, so I thought that this would be the easiest way to do it. I didn't take any advice from anybody. It was pretty clearly sought out between my wife and myself. The first year of business, um, I um, my sewers all agreed to 30 days. My fabric suppliers agreed to 90, so I, I had a ready-made business. Um, I <laughs> went into a situation where um, my first year I turned over $8 million from a zero start.
0: Well, but how? How did you – I guess how did you – and I don't want to go into too much detail right now about the business side of things because I, w- I want to – save and really dive into every aspect of it. But I guess a lot of people, you know, they want to know how to, to grow that fast. And obviously that happened for you because you landed the big clients with Coles and, and Woolworths. Well, and I guess um, maybe you could share how you got them, how, how, how you got in the door.
1: In those days um, at Coles, and that was before Kmart came along, mm-hmm. at Coles they had a buying day every Thursday so the buyers had to see you. Okay. So regardless of whether they liked me or they didn't like me or they respected me for what I wanted to do, um, they had to see me. So I would go every Thursday to Coles and try and get, get, get business from them. And the business that I picked up was a business that the old traditional suppliers who made fortunes of money didn't want to take. They, um, and I offered them very quick turnover because my sellers were all Vietnamese, uh, both people. Uh, they were w- re- willing to do absolutely anything for me, um, and uh, I got I got the situation to work favorably for me. My second year, we turned over twenty million dollars, and then it was just a rolling on business. And then eventually, it, you got to the point where you did one of the biggest sales, the largest yeah. private, uh, a largest sale um, for um, for generic brand product for sure. Wow. In the end, um, my business didn't always have highs. There were times when my business was great and there were times when uh, times were tough uh, and uh, it wasn't always easy but the formula worked um, and uh, I grew the business to, to a size where um, I had the world at our feet. Mm-hmm. We had a, a business that was substantial. We continued the same formula of getting credit uh, right till the end. I realised that if I was going to, if I wanted to fulfil my dream of actually selling my business, the time was right then because we had just produced 11 million garments that year, uh, and we were turning over just under 150 million dollars. So, it was, and we had five million dollars in the bank. So, it was a really well structured business. Uh, it worked fantastically for me. We were always profitable. Um, there was uh, immense goodwill. We, our supplier our customers were Coles, Woolworths, Kmart, Target, Big W, and uh, Millers. And and so after you, I guess, left the business yeah. and you sold, what
0: did you what do? Well, look, what did you
1: I, do? I, um, I was extremely lucky. I realized that if I died, I didn't want to leave my business to my wife and kids because they wouldn't have been able to run it. It was a, a living on the edge for 35 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I realized at the time we couldn't grow any further. Um, I also believed that there was going to be a time when the retailers were going to want to do the Um, production themselves rather than work with wholesale distributors. Has that happened? Absolutely. So I um, went around the world to try and sell my business. I was successful in selling it to a public company. I was uh, escrowed for two years. It was a a lot of money but the deal was that they would um, pay me 10% um, immediately and the rest was to be escrowed for two years and I had to stay on for two years. It was based on their share price, um, and it was amazing that I was advised not to do the deal by my board. And so oh, you went against the board? Absolutely. I had the casting votes, so I was quite yeah. easy, to, easy to. And do. why? And did you just what, Why well, did you do that? Well, if their share price tanked, I was I was in in my business was over. Yeah,
0: and that's why the and, board was saying no.
1: Yeah, they were worried that I was going to give my had the poten- propensity of giving up my business because either their share price dropped too low or whatever might have happened. So um, the share price when they bought me out, was the public companies was $6.50. Um, they split after six months, the share price split, and the share price went to $3.25, but it worked to be the same. You just got more shares for a lower price. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I did the deal. Um, a share price was $6.50, it then went to $3.25, uh, and for two years, I used to watch that share, share price going every minute or every day <laughs> and um, after two years uh, i um, after two years, I was free to sell out, get my funds uh, on the basis of the share price that was valued at that time, and I was lucky enough to succeed uh, where i don 't think anybody's made so much money as I did uh, on the deal that I, I did the day that we completed the um, Transaction. I was given the shares back out of escrow. The share price was three seventy five. So I actually made more money on the deal than when initially negotiated. So it was an amazing experience. Um, I could not believe what I achieved out of a budget fashion. Uh, people used to uh, couldn't believe it either. Uh, so it worked favorably for myself and for my family. And so, and because we're going
0: to come back to the business and we're really going to dive into the lessons as well, because I've had conversations with you in the past. And you've told me things that I I really want to kind of flesh out. But but, um, just as a summary in how you got into budget fashion, you essentially looked at the industry, looked at the part of the industry that no one wanted a part of. It wasn't the sexy part of the industry.
1: Absolutely. And then
0: you got in the face of the big companies and you offered offered them terms that were – or you offered them – you sold them well. Yeah. You offered them terms that were good for them to get in the door, and then you really perfected and, and you you kind of built that kind of budget garment industry off the back of that no one else wanted to, and you created, uh, you just created a, a brilliantly uh, what did you call it uh, one time, uh, you were an incredibly efficient company, absolutely, uh, and and that's what uh, that's how you got in the industry and how you dominated.
1: We we certainly were – I mean I had a lot of uh, people that disliked me intensely because no one could ever meet (laughs) price points. Um, But I worked out that the the way that if – I didn't work on profit margins, I worked on volume. So if I achieved a certain dollar value for a particular month, then I was – if I got past that break-even point with the volume, then everything else became profit. So um, it worked really well. I I had a small infrastructure – I produced firstly in Australia for maybe 10 years and then it became impossibly difficult to uh, operate with the unions and so I landed up realising that I had to go to China. It was a very difficult decision to make because I had at some stages over 2,000 soers working for me. But it was a way to survive uh, the industry going forward. And because, because, I, sorry, because I didn't have any experience in China, I realised that I was going to make bad mistakes that could be costly and I could let my customer down. So I bought a procurement company in Hong Kong and uh, it was a family-run business. They were the biggest suppliers to uh, Scandinavia and they the father wanted to sell, the kids were in the business and they wanted to get out. The kids wanted to stay in the business and I bought the company. They had two massive uh, factories just outside Shanghai They also had 16 quality control. So it was like closing the business in Australia at the end of November. From the 1st of December, everything went to China and it worked incredibly well. So I was really lucky. It was one of the smartest decisions I ever made. You ever made.
0: And the reason you bought the company in China was um, was to ensure that you had control over that aspect of the business still so that you wouldn't let down your clients. So I guess the lesson in it was always to – to maintain control over delivering your clients' value always.
1: It's really interesting because when I moved to China, my profit margins went up because I was buying cheaper out of China than I was making in Australia. Mm -hmm. So it worked really favourably for me. And so you you got out of – then you sold, you got out of the garment
0: industry and what did you do?
1: I um, went – came out of the industry with the world at our feet, you know, living for 35 years in a very tough pocket, uh, it took its toll on myself, my family and my kids. Um, so now all of a sudden I was able to have total freedom and I decided to my, – my wife encouraged me to have a, um, a, a knee procedure, minor knee procedure, um, and I um, – and then we were going to go overseas for two years. Um, I went into the hospital to have a, a procedure done. It, I got in the morning, came out in the afternoon. A week later I nearly died from golden staff that I picked up in the hospital. And that was a journey of hell. It's amazing that, you know, you achieve all your goals and then all of a sudden they mean nothing. The only good thing that I made in in making the money that I did make was that I could afford to buy the best doctors and surgeons uh, available.
0: And what did you learn in that experience?
1: That I um, was fallible and that I came from being extremely healthy. I um, had achieved uh, a lot in my martial arts uh, and yet I nearly died from something that should never have happened. And that took its toll on me for eight or nine years. I had uh, I had six major surgeries. Um, I was on incredibly powerful drugs. That I used to suffer acute pain, but I got through it. And once once I got through it, I thought, you know what? I'm going to start to enjoy my life with my family and kids. I'm going to um, start doing things that I never thought I could ever do again in my life. Um, and My life since then has been wonderful. Uh, It was fortuitous that I was able to join up with the club because I've met some incredibly uh, um, smart people, people that are full of inspiration, and also people that want to learn from somebody who's a mentor to them, who can actually guide them. Not always are the experiences the same as what I had, but the, the circumstances were pretty much the same as advising people about how to take their business from where they are and guide it through um, to the next stage of their life to to their satisfaction and so would you say that the that negative
0: almost ten years of your life, the difficult ten years where you were suffering from the surgery and and the the um, recovery, would you say that that actually eventually had a positive effect
1: on your life? It did because I realized how fallible we are uh, and that from uh, any experience like I had, um, …where I nearly died. I was terribly disabled. And as somebody that had achieved, as I said earlier, great goals in martial arts… …all of a sudden I couldn't do it. I just was not capable. I walked with crutches, I walked with a walking sick. It was terrible. I felt like when I saw my business I was full of excitement, full of energy… Mm-hmm. …looking forward to the future. Um, but it never happened. And, and it just got worse and worse until I had one major operation uh, four years ago… Uh, where the the professor who operated on me said either this operation will help you to lead a normal life or we're going to have to amputate your leg. Now that just shook me completely. Um, And um, I had the operation, it was an eight-hour operation. Um, I was in a juice coma for three days, I was in intensive care for a week and I was in hospital for a month. But luckily for me the operation worked and I've been able to normalize my life. Incredible, and and I guess what were the what
0: were the positives that came out of
1: of that experience? What
0: what what did it did it force you to get into anything? Did it force you to do anything after?
1: Absolutely, because my mind sort of stagnated when I was at home for um, for that period of time with my leg, and I um, I felt like I um, I had to make up for, local, um, for lost time, mm-hmm. and uh, that's when I sort of connected with you and and your team. And I thought, you know, this would be a great way for me to get back into the world. A lot of people uh, forgot about me because of my leg um, and my time out of circulation, uh, and the club brought me back into the world of circulation and meeting up with young, so young people. I'm so happy to hear that. Absolutely, I'm and so I'll always be a very strong advocate for your for your club and the people that are involved in it, and how young people can achieve so much. Um, and it's fantastic to be associated with it. That's incredible. It makes to me you. makes me feel young
0: again. Thank you so much. And speaking of your martial art, well, young again, you you definitely feel young again. You were just telling me before this that you do boxing twice a week, karate twice a week, three and times a week, three yeah. times a week. So yeah. I'd say you're in more shape than me. But but um, speaking of martial arts, you were uh, quite. You had a really interesting and prolific experience in. Was it boxing promoting or?
1: I um, I've, have been a great um, collector of uh, boxing memorabilia, Mostly, um, most probably one of the largest in the world today of pieces that I've collected all over the world over a period of time. I loved the excitement of, of boxing. My preferences have been for the old boxers in the 30s and 40s. It's a hobby of mine. And collected some amazing pieces and I'm just really, I love it. Is that like the Jack Dempsey's and the... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jack Dempsey, uh, um, Joe Louis, um, Rocky Marciano. And how did you, what do you think the attraction
0: between martial arts and, and businesses? Because obviously, you know, I'm a big uh, martial arts fan and, 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 and I box and and now wrestling, and kickbox. But but um, I know many members actually are... are Big martial arts advocates. Why do you think that the entrepreneur is attracted to the to the martial art?
1: You know, I come from a little country town in South Africa, um, which was a right wing town um, of the apartheid era. Um, being Jewish in a small town like that meant that I was going to do it tough. At school, I was constantly uh, humiliated and abused because of. …the fact that I was Jewish. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad, when I was 11, introduced me to a karate school in my hometown. And I was fascinated by it and I, I was committed to it, one for survival, but two, because I was learning more and more and challenging my brain as eleven 11, 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. I had a, a five-year break from it, what not normally happens with kids, um, giving it up for a period. And then um, when I was 18 I started again and I started really hard and uh, I… I wanted to learn and I wanted to achieve my black belt, uh, which I did in, um, in 1981. So you're a black belt karate. I, I'm actually right now a fifth down in karate. Wow. But, um, um, I now am studying a kabuda, which is uh, the old traditional Japanese weapons. Uh, I'm committed to learning that from a grandmaster who teaches me twice a week. And I, I love it and it's kept me... Uh, Saying it's helped me to be comfortable about my issues in my life mm-hmm. and I can always, when things are getting tough, I can just go back into room and practice my cutters and, and just feel so much better.
0: Would you recommend
1: that other business owners
0: look at something like martial arts to act as a kind of distraction but at the same time um, mental strength building? Uh, for business, would you recommend other people find find something like that? I
1: think um, whether it's boxing uh, or whether it's karate or whatever you do, I think it's important that those sort of things become part of your life because they help you to um, escape from the pressures of mm. work and a career and you – If you want to do it, you go in with an open mind and you commit yourself to that lesson and you learn as much as you can. Yes. Um, And I think it's a wonderful um, experience to be part of um, the martial arts world, whether it's boxing or whether it's karate. And
0: I think it it gives you a a level of confidence and it also gives you – because like exactly what you said, it distracts you from – Maybe the chaos of business or the problems that you may be having, because you're you're focusing so much on just the other person or just your skill or the way you're standing or, or the way you're moving, and and that distraction is a really nice peaceful moment.
1: There's no doubt, and and you know we we have, people in business have sometimes extremely stressful situations. I mean things like this virus that we're up against right now. Two months ago, it wasn't an issue. No one thought it was going to be. Ever a problem that we faced, um, our kids um, are um, have never experienced anything like this mm-hmm. and stresses like this can kill you it can make you feel depressed it can make you want to commit suicide mm-hmm. it's, it's frightening the moment you do something like a martial art or whether it 's yoga or whether it 's boxing, it takes this edge off mm-hmm. um, and allows you to experience something that that diffuses your Fear that, that might be existing uh, outside of your life.
0: I I fully agree, yeah. Because that's that's definitely what it it does it does for me. And what was your involvement in the business of boxing? Because you, uh, you did you tell me you met Muhammad Ali and was that?
1: I, I never met Muhammad Ali, but I met a lot of others. You accidentally uh, for, fell into it, didn't you? Yeah, I was um, I was asked to um, by uh, Jeff Fennick was. At that stage uh, a triple world champion and Jeff Harding was a two-time world champion and they used to come to me for (laughs) tracksuits. And and Jeff Harding at that stage was um, the world light heavyweight champion and he came to me for tracksuits and he had a problem with a contract with Don King. He asked me could I help him, I helped him and after… Maybe four or five weeks of being together and helping him through this, which I loved because it was something I was really loving about it, and it also gave me um, it. It also gave me a diversion uh, in my life away from my, my rat trade company, um, and I helped him on this contract on to, to sort out this this uh, dispute that he had with um, Don King, and he said to me, "Would you would you mind becoming my manager?" So he has a world champion who is a real rocky. Um, and he's asked me to be part of something that I thought, oh my God, I'm just, just going to lap this up. And yeah. <laughs> um, I did a really good fo- I did a really good job for him. Uh, he had two defenses of his of his title when I was uh, uh, looking after him, and he he got beaten the third fight that we organised, um, and then out of nowhere, Jeff Fenwick was making a comeback. And he said he would love someone like myself to help him um, get ready for this fight and to take over the negotiations uh, of, um, of of his comeback. So all of a sudden now I'm involved with two guys who are iconic fighters in Australia and Fennec and Harnie both globally as well. And I was right in the thick of it and I was just loving every moment of it. Yeah. Um, I… Um, how old were you at this point? How, how long after um, the company? Or was this during the company? During the company, absolutely. Oh Oh, so you are doing both. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh. And then I, um, I got a, um, a call from Theo uh, Anasvaroo who was, at that stage, Jamie, Jamie Packer's main advisor and Kerry, Kerry Packer's main advisor. And he said that they've just signed up Costa Zoo. Um, would I mind coming in and promoting his first title defeat? And I was blown away and I, I did it. It was in Newcastle. It was in one of the most successful boxing shows ever in Australia. Really? Um, uh, the reason why it was done in Newcastle was uh, Sky Channel on that stage was only a pub channel and they would sell the pub the pub, the uh, fights and they were worried that there would be too many f- pubs that wouldn't take the fight if it was shown in, in – it wouldn't come to the fight. Uh, it wouldn't come to Costa um, fight um, if the, the pubs didn't take the fight. So we, it was in Newcastle and it was amazing. Where was it in Newcastle? In the, in the entertainment centre. Oh, brilliant. So there were 12,000 people at that show and it made, made a lot of money for Costa Zoo, made a lot of money for, for Sky Channel. And so you put it all
0: together. You'd never oh, done the, it before and you just... You know,
1: it was common sense more than anything else. I mean, I, it was harder being in the rare trade than doing the boxing world.
0: Well, what, what's the... I guess, what were your takeaways from the boxing world? What were the lessons learnt in that?
1: About being sharp and not being ripped off.
0: Yeah, because there's a bunch of scumbags the, in the, the boxing worst, The
1: worst in the world. But also some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life as well. Yeah. By and they sharpened me up uh, and they helped me to learn to negotiate positively, um, not aggressively but positively, and how to not let go of the the upper hand at all times. Anyway, so Jeff Fenney came back. We did three fights, two in uh, – one in Minnesota, one in Las Vegas, um, and then I promoted his last fight – uh, for, for the title in Australia. Uh, he got beaten and that's when I quit. But I made some amazing friends um, out of it. Uh, people keep in touch with me still today and I think as you saw, you, you came to my house and you.
0: No, I haven't. Okay. Well, A- I, I haven't. believe Anthony. Yeah, Anthony
1: yes. uh, you'll see things there that you would only dream of. Um, well, I'd I love look, to come look, and see look, them. I look, look, look forward to showing it to you. Oh, I'd love that. So that's, that's my story with boxing. That's and then I quit because it was taking up more time and my business needed more more, mm-hmm. more time as well. And I had the experience. I enjoyed the, the um, opportunity to work with people that are highly successful that I normally wouldn't have met up with. And they've all helped me in my career as well. You know, I've got some really strong friends out of it. And so I think
0: something that's really cool about your career is that you had this business that you loved and you were focused on, but also at the same time you were breaking up. You were giving your mind something else to do. So you had your martial arts, and then you literally got into the business of martial arts, and you were doing that at the same time. So, did that help? Did that did. help?
1: Yeah, of course it did. It, it, it did help me. Um, business for me was always tough because when you're at, it at the bottom end, you're talking about cents mm. rather than dollars in terms of your margin. Um, and and if you um, if you collapsed on one order which could have been twenty thousand pieces, there was no way to dispose of it because mm. there's no there's no off price people that can take up they that can volume. Take it. Uh, and I had one order of a hundred thousand pairs of jeans, denim jeans that Kmart wanted to sell for ten dollars and they came to me with this project and I said, Well I'm not comfortable about it, but they encouraged me to do it. Now if that failed for any reason, I, I was broke. Because I think hundred thousand I think I sold them at Five dollars mm-hmm. um, would have sent me broke. I wouldn't know what to do with this. There's no one that could take it up. It would have been landfall. So and uh, did you, so I, you took the job. Took the job and the success the success, uh, success and what, really um, produced the order.
0: And so what? Why did you take the job? Did you look at it and say the
1: upside is bigger than the down? Big, the, I think it, ga- it ga- put me ahead of my competitors because nobody else would have touched it.
0: Okay, so if so you got
1: that and did well, then you know you knew your future was good. Whether they liked me or they didn't like me, they knew that they had to um, respect me mm-hmm. uh, for what we did. Um, and when you come to to my office, you'll see a photo of um, the CEO of Coles, uh, Brian Beattie, the CEO of Kmart, um, giving me an award for their being such a success. Wow! Show. So I have this. A trophy at home. I'd love to see. Yeah. I can't wait to
0: see. And can we get back into the business then, into the to the rag trade? I'd love to really learn the less your most important lessons that you've learned and I guess why you were so successful in that industry. What, how, how, how did you go about it?
1: I had to be very careful because I, I had to watch my overheads always because my overheads could. Had a propensity to to destroy me
0: because it was such a small margin, low cost business. It was all about your cost, so you had to look at,
1: you had to stare at the cost all the time. All the time, and I must say that I employed most probably the smartest people in the garment industry, Mm -hmm. paid them higher than they would get anywhere else Mm -hmm. in the middle market, uh, the departmental store business. uh, They couldn't, so they committed themselves to me. Mm -hmm. I um, I got the response that they were so. Taken up by what we were doing and the success we were, we were achieving, and that was most probably the smartest thing that I ever did was I think I was telling you earlier that… was finding uh, the smartest people finding the smartest people and, and who were multi multitasked
0: and how did you how did you so because they were the smartest people and because they're multitasked, what that meant was obviously they got paid more, but uh, your costs were lower, and your team quality was higher Absolutely. because so it's a win to do that. So you'd encourage people. You know, for as long I feel like we do that at Cup, definitely. Oh sure. Uh,
1: for as long as I was in the in the industry, um, I would put aside Saturday every Saturday. And what we used to do is, I'd take two of my designers and we'd go and look at the stores, so you know what our opposition was doing, you know what the retailers were doing, and um, it was a, just a discipline. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about twenty years. We used to do that. We would never miss a Saturday. And so Uh, what
0: what would you do on Saturday? You would study the industry? Yeah,
1: study what's in the retail. Wow. um, And give us an understanding. And um, a lot of the time we went out and bought middle-of-the-road stuff and then showed it to our customers who said they really want it. Mm -hmm. But how how can they afford it? And that was our challenge. So we were constantly offering new product at that bottom end where people um, um, have have very limited uh, resources. Is it similar to – are you aware of
0: like the Zara brand and the low-cost fashion at yeah. the moment? Is it similar to kind of that in that they take high-end styles yeah. and go and produce it for very cheap?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uniqlo is the same. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They this type it. of companies. Yeah, well, we, we were – our price points were much lower than that. Okay. Um, and also remember um, I used to watch the dollar all the time because my china – our office was sort of quoting on prices yes and if we didn't hedge our funds properly we would have been very it could be very destructive for us so we were it was it was a commitment that you couldn't half get away with. now go back to the boxing um i think when you live in a, a successful environment um you get to a stage where you need a break mm-hmm. whether it's taking up a sport whether it's Buying bikes and go cycling, whether you go overseas and ski once a year, you need to have something to break that, uh, to to make that diversion, because you cannot survive at that. The burnout factor is ridiculous. Yeah. So you have to be conscious of the fact that you have to, you have to have some reason um, to keep yourself in the industry, and that would be by having other interests. Mm -hmm. The karate was my other interest. And travel, did you travel much? A lot.
0: Yeah, because I always find when I, when I come back, so when I travel, I come up with the best ideas because I'm relaxed, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more creatively. And also when I come back, I'm uh, more motivated to work extra hard because I liked all the nice things I did when I traveled. Sure,
1: for sure. So that, um, that was, uh, and I believe, in, and if you didn't, you burn out.
0: Mm-hmm, 100%.
1: Yeah, and so that was always an issue with me. Um, but you know what, if I had to do it all over again, I'm not sure that I would achieve the success that I did achieve because the industry has changed so dramatically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today um, the currency is weak. Um, We have a virus which no one ever thought. I mean you think two and a half months ago the stock market reached its biggest high and two and a half months down the track we now have the propensity to be totally destroyed and no one knows how to beat it. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously going to affect business all around. And what's your – What's your So you've
0: experienced two downturns, one in 87 and one in 08. Yeah. I guess what lessons could you take from those uh, experiences that people currently going, uh, business owners currently going through this period could could use?
1: To, um, the first one in 1987. Which which crash was that? What was it called? It was the Black Friday. Okay. It was a disaster. It, it just came from nowhere. Three things that determined my business and put me a cut above everyone. One was the uh, in nineteen ninety seven. It was a stock market crash, mm-hmm. uh, and that affected people. The thing before that was the fact that uh, maybe two months before, two two years before that, Australian dollar was two thousand. Australian dollar was like $1.20 to the US dollar. It was stronger than the US dollar.
0: It was stronger than the US dollar. Yeah, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, it was stronger than the US dollar. Um, it was like 120. To
0: the why, why? Why did that happen?
1: Oh, was minerals. There's, you know, crazy world we were living mm-hmm. in those days. Everyone was making a lot of money, and there was no system to protect um, the system. Mm-hmm. So everyone was abusing it, and all of a sudden, in business, we became quite cavalier. And out of nowhere, the market crashed Black Friday. So no one was expecting it. It was just and no, bang. And no one hedged their, their their dollar when they were when they were costing. Mm-hmm. It's a dollar twenty. It's a dollar twenty, and all of a sudden one day when Paul Keating came out and said Banana Republic and uh, the dollar went from one twenty to eighty cents. So if I was selling a garment for five dollars to retail for seven ninety eight or nine dollars, and I costed it at one twenty and I was making twenty or thirty cents of that garment, all of a sudden the dollar drops to eighty cents, I was dead water. You can't. You're losing and money, you, and day. you can't go back to the retail. So I want you to pay us more because they won't do it. Mm. That was the first issue that I had. So um, how did you get around that issue? Just by survival.
0: You you said to me before you mentioned that kind of what got you through as well was that you acted uh, efficiently, but also affectionately. That you were you were accommodating to to people,
1: to I, other businesses. I, I, what I did was I. Um, realized that I had to be lean as possibly as I can. And I um, decided in, not so much in two, two, um, 1987, more in 2008 when this, the next crash happened, mm-hmm. also a stock market crash. In order to survive, I was employing about 50 people. Mm-hmm. I realized I had to shave it dramatically. So what I did was, and was, was one of my better moves that I made, was I decided – to pick a team that will be multifaceted and pay them more in the middle of this crisis.
0: Pay them more pay in them the middle of the
1: crisis. Ahead, but asking them to do three times what they were doing. Yes. To become, so I put together from 50, I think I put it together a team of between 15 and 20 people, pay them a lot more, gave them motivation. And unfortunately I had to dispose of a lot of people, but yes. it was survival.
0: And, and because really the business needs to survive in order to maintain current jobs that, people can keep as well as future jobs. For sure. So the business's survival is, is, for sure. is obviously priority.
1: And it worked. It, was, it worked. And I kept that formula all the way. Even when we were producing 11 million garments, I had like 20 20 people working for me. And I made a lot of them very rich as well.
0: Yes, and that's so important. Yes. And I love that because, because that means that the downturn in the economy yeah. actually had a positive effect in the future for your business. You learned. Yeah. Uh, you I mean you were forced to shrink the team, yeah. pay them more, give them also more um, ownership over the over the business because they're working harder, they're, they're part of that core team, they're, sure. they're feeling good. And and as the business, as the economy returned, then your business, your costs were much leaner, your team was much more devoted, they were earning a lot of money. Um,
1: and and we're talking about bad times now, yeah. all of that happening. Yeah, and you did that in the bad times. We did it in the bad times. Yeah. And I must just tell you, um, Danny, that, I employed a lot more women than men, mm-hmm. just um, just how the, the rate trade works. Yes, I would have three people, three guys working on product and going out and selling. I would close the deal, mm-hmm. but they would go out and do all the initial work. Do you know that they, when this is before the government came out with things relating to uh, uh, pregnancies and stuff like that, mm-hmm. all my girls all had babies mm-hmm. at similar times. I didn't lay off any. That's before the government. Before the regulations yeah. were there. I paid them the salary for the – some of them Some of them took off. And this was amazing. They would take off six weeks mm-hmm. and they were back in the fold. So it, the formula worked. It was honesty and integrity and productivity.
0: And, and so I guess that the kind of – yeah, the, the formula is – to put your team to, to be there for the team, right? Yeah. If th- these people are, uh, are are the what ki- what run the business, and so if they need something that that uh, if they if you can help them, that
1: you do. Honestly, you know, one of my um, Vietnamese employees, lady who used to work the the design room samples, she came to me one day in two thousand and eight, and she said, "I'm humbled by what you do for us, but." I have to ask you to please understand my position. I said, what's her name? Um, Vicky. Mm-hmm. Lovely lady, school teacher in Vietnam, came on a boat, was in, um, in a camp in Indonesia for two years and then came out to Australia as a refugee. She said to me, Paul, can you guarantee me my job for the next four years, three to four years, four years? Mm-hmm. Of course, Vicky, Why would I not? She goes, my husband's going back to university to study law. And he did accomplish that. He's now a very successful lawyer. And Vicky and I still stay in touch. And she wanted the assurance that she was going to have to fund the family. So you gave her that security so her Absolutely. husband was able to go study. I was so inspired by what she had to say. She wanted to see her husband achieve his goals and his dreams.
0: That's incredible. It's yeah. an amazing story. and. And what's, what's your opinion then on the current global situation? What do you think is going to happen to the economy? How do you think it's going to affect just business and, and everybody? Uh, look, I'd love
1: to say this, but I get a very negative feeling about what's happening. Um, why? Because we've got a virus that no one knows where, what and how. And at this stage, no one has the, the answers to the problem. Um, shopping centres are decimated. There's no one in there. Fashion stores are shut. Every store is shut in the shopping centres. And it will take a lot of time before it ever resurrects. I also think that people are going to be very reluctant to go and spend after this. The other thing that worries me a lot is people cashing in on their super fund when they a lot younger than, than they um, would be allowed to to do. Um, and I just um, – I just – I'm shudder to think what can happen. Um, I think um, – Family infrastructure. It's going to be interesting to see how they all, how we all hang in there and and get through this period. But I don't, I don't feel comfortable going. Um, you know, when I think back of the two, the two stock market crashes in nineteen eighty seven and and um, two thousand and eight, they were stock market crashes. We have a virus that nobody knows anything about, and. No one knows what the future holds for any of us. So I think there's going to be a very uncomfortable period that we're going to go through. Um, it's 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 not pleasant and um, it frightened me to see the dull cues reminiscent of the Great Depression.
0: The people lining up outside.
1: Oh, it's very sad. And also people lining up for food parcels, which is just as sad.
0: I mean, the world has to go on. So yeah. The world has to go on and there will be many opportunities.
1: There's no doubt there'll be opportunities. that will never present themselves in our lives again mm-hmm. as a result of this. But, so, but it's, a bit, it's, it's a bit ugly.
0: A sad situation. A like sad, that. yeah.
1: I had an Uber take me over to your place and it was a lady um, from Fiji uh, and she was driving the Uber and she said, I said, I asked her a couple of simple questions. She said, I got laid off two weeks ago from Amy in the insurance company she was in marketing and um, marketing side of uh, Amy. She said there were ninety people in her division, and they cut it down to twenty. I think that's terrible, and I think that's scary.
0: But it, but at the same time, is that not what you recommended as well? So, like, what would you recommend business people do at the moment? For example, I, I, myself, I, I, what, what would you recommend? How would you advise me to handle the current situation? Or
1: I, I, I look, it does come to be where you are faced with a situation where how do you survive in these times? Mm -hmm. The government's handing out money for six months. The big fear with that is how they're going to pay it all back over the years. I think we'll pay a price, whether it's death duties or something, that that somehow they're going to have to get their money back. Um, I feel very scared um, about the consequences. My my, um, daughter is a nurse. She's… one of the head nurses in theatres at St Vincent's Um, and she was in elective surgery so she did knees and shoulders and hips and they shut that whole section down Um, and she um, was laid off. Mm -hmm. The only opportunity they gave her was if she wants to stay on as a nurse in St Vincent's, all of that area has been pushed into the virus area Mm -hmm. and she said, Dad, I I just… I just don't want to do it. I'm just too scared. I've got two young kids. I can't do it. So she's been laid off. Um, her husband is a banker with Commonwealth Bank and he um, – all he's doing right now is saving, saving his customers and helping to negotiate um, the closing of contracts that, that mm-hmm. they might have with the bank. If they didn't have parents like my wife and I, they'd be in serious trouble because – They just – as a nurse, she doesn't earn a lot of money. He is in a bank. He's not in a massive position but very possibly could be laid off. Mm -hmm. So I look at that and I say, well, if my my daughter didn't have parents who were in a position to help them, what would they do? And so what do you recommend businesses do? I think if I was in business right now, what I would do is I'd I'd structure a formula where I'm going to pick out – say I employed 35 or 40 people – uh, in my company. Mm-hmm. I'd say um, our turnover is going to obviously drop because um, stores are closed but I'd say that um, I would keep on the maximum of people that would be 15, um, been with the company for so many years that could do multifaceted um, opportunities and, um, and I'd make sure that they were able to do the work of three other people in the company mm-hmm. um, and I would try – and in, when, when things settle down and they do open up stores, then I would go out to, to my retailers and offer them deals that they never would get in any time Yes, um, to help them survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully that formula will bridge um, people together. Uh, they'll work towards a, a positive result. However, I feel feel absolutely terrible about the people that I'd have to lay off. But I'd make sure that I was generous enough to give them enough money to – be able to survive until something does happen for them.
0: Yeah, if you're able to, some businesses obviously. Well, I'm are just not, talking about myself. Yeah, yeah, but no, but I like I love that because it, I like for example I could relate to that. So uh, you can keep the team that uh, I guess are the mo- most multifaceted, the, the I guess the best players that are able to do many different type of roles, Um and then go to your potential clients or in your case it was the retailers and offer them. You said, it I really loved how you said it. Um, act affectionately, be accommodating, help, just give what you can, and, and maintain and build that relationship. Um, because once the economy comes back, then of course you're in you're in a, a very strong, strong position. Brilliant. And so, that, I mean, I think that's f- f- Incredible, incredible advice. I'm, I'm so happy to, I'm so happy to hear that. And and um, I've been. Really blown away by this conversation.
1: You wanted to talk about uh, the airline disaster. Oh yeah, please.
0: Yeah. Yes. Can we?
1: Yeah, for sure. In 1988, my wife, my daughter who was six at the time, and myself were travelling from back from a trip. For me, it was. Oh, a your daughter
0: was your daughter with you? I didn't yeah, know she this. was six.
1: Yeah. And um, we we're flying back from Honolulu to Sydney and we were, we were 20, um, we were on a flight from Honolulu to Sydney and we, the fly- flight boarded at about 11 o'clock at night and um, we, the plane took off and we were sitting in business class. In that stage there was um, 18 people in business class down the bottom area of, of the plane and we um, were sitting in row nine um, 27 minutes after the plane took off from Honolulu, there was the loudest explosion, um, loudest explosion. The door had blown out and put a hole of 22 foot by uh, 40 foot. And the people sitting in business class of the 1811 were blown out of the plane.
0: Um, while, while you're sitting on the plane, there's yeah. a hole in the plane and people are being sucked out of it.
1: They the were pool. sucked out just in this, at, at the time of the explosion when the door blew out, uh, it blew a hole it took out the whole of the fuselage. I looked at it I looked at the whole the gentleman sitting next to my wife um was blown out of the plane, and his wife was on the opposite oh. side um, so she said that with him um so it was it was horrific um can you just i i I thought that it was it was the time when a lot of bombs were going off. I was sure that that was a bomb that had gone off, but what had happened was we had Total vision of the um, engines, and two engines were on fire, the same side of the, same of the side, of the side of the plane, and two bodies had been sucked into the engines, so it was a very difficult task for the pilot to to control and to try and engineer this plane to land. He believed that it would be five kilometers. Into the ocean uh, in Pearl Harbor, and um, he didn't think he could land it. Why? Because he had full uh, tanks of, of fuel, and to try and land a plane like that with full fuel, he couldn't uh, um, dislodge any fuel um, because of the flames mm-hmm. two engines. Um, so because the he, fuel
0: would co- yeah, fuel would cause the plane to go on fire. Yeah,
1: so um, the plane dropped from thirty-two foot to eleven foot. Um, almost within ten minutes, Um, we we were absolutely convinced that we we couldn't survive. It became very difficult because we could see the lights of Honolulu and we thought this never going to happen, you know, and we wished that we could die rather than have this prolonged period of trying to fly back from, um, from Honolulu to get back to Honolulu. It was a horrific experience. I one of the flight attendants was delivering um, drinks and the flight, the drink trolley hit her in the back of the head and she was just covered in blood. She was lying maybe next, not far from, right next to the hole in fact. I got up and picked her up and put her under my legs. She was bleeding profusely and she was in a terrible way.
0: And can you describe, you're in the plane, This, the chaos is happening, there's a hole, people are being blown out up. of the plane. Are you able... It, when so, obviously, very few people have ever been in an experience like that. When you're in an experience like that, are you able to actually take in what's going on, or is there a level of panic that comes through your body that doesn't allow that to happen?
1: Look, my daughter of six witnessed a guy being blown out of the plane, so I can imagine how uh, what an impact that would have made on a mm-hmm. six year old kid, knowing that people actually died around us. I mean, you must remember 11 out of 18s all around us because the the. the the pe- the position of the uh, of the uh, business class part of the plane um, was the worst position? Was from seats were affected were from row eight to thirteen, and we were so people that got blown out of the plane were from eight to thirteen, and they um, it, it it was just unbelievable. It was it was um, so visual and. All our bags got blown out of the fuselage. Uh, we had no, nothing. It was just wires we didn 't get any oxygen because that also got blown out of the plane, so it was really difficult to, to even survive it. How was I feeling? I was agitated because one about my kid and I was going to affect her. We also had left our baby home. she was not he was she was nine months old at the start so she was at home with her nanny. Thank God, so yeah, well, she would have been in a, a, one of those little um, bassinets mm-hmm. uh, on the plane, and she would have been blown out. Um, so, yeah, so it was a, it was an experience something really interesting happened, um, which, which had quite a big impact on me. When my wife booked us into at the ticket counter in Honolulu, uh, she said, "Is there a possibility to get a spare seat between us?" Uh, and she said, "Yes, I can give you a seat row nine, E and e- e- F or F and G, uh, and then we'll block one seat off, and then the guy who um, got blown out of the plane would have the, the, the seat on the aisle. Mm-hmm. So, so it would be my wife, my daughter, and then a blank seat and then this guy who got blown out of the plane. Anyway, the counter, the lady at the counter said that I'll put you in row F G and E or F whatever it was. And um and um so I said, great. My daughter was crying, she was overtired. So Susan said just sit with the but the plane was being rallied out onto the, to the runway. Mm-hmm. She said, just sit down with Georgie while she um, – and just help, her to, help me to settle her because she was very uncomfortable about flying back. Anyway, I sat down on the spare seat and as the plane was about to take off, two guys from the middle of the plane, uh, very high-profile business people, two guys from the middle of the plane saw the two seats free on the opposite side of the plane um, and took my seat. So obviously they were blown out of the plane. So that was really interesting. So oh how, what what we what really live with is members. But if any of your um, members wants to read anything about it, it's uh, United Airlines 811. Um, so you'll they'll find it. Back to the back to the
0: experience itself, um, and I want to ask how it's affected you as well. But but just being in that experience, were you able to function, or were you like were you able to move and were you able to see and what was going on sure. or were you not? Were you were you I kind of on a ride that you didn't know what was going no, to happen?
1: No, no, I, I knew about it. First of all, I, I picked up this flight attendant and put it under my legs. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I saw the lights of and thought this will never happen, we'll never ever touch down again. So if we're going to die, let us die now rather mm-hmm. than have this belated period where um, we can't, we, we, we know that. We're going to die, but we just don't know. So that twenty-seven minutes between the plane reaching its um, its height and coming back to land um, was the most painful experience I've ever had to endure in my life because we were waiting to die, and it wasn't happening. And every time the plane became more visible, the
0: the floor became more visible. No, no, the
1: lights in Honolulu became Mm -hmm. more visible. This is torture.
0: And And waiting to die.
1: It's a terrible feeling.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say, what what's
1: what were you thinking in your head? I was thinking about my, my baby back in uh, Australia. Um, I was thinking a lot about her and thinking well, I didn't even have a will which was terrible. Um, and I was just thinking about her and I was thinking about the impact this would have on my, my six-year-old um, and also the impact on my wife. My wife could, in those days you could smoke on aeroplanes mm-hmm. and they used to have those really thick um, glass ashtrays. Um, one of them was sticking in my wife's back. She oh got terrible strepnel. Um, ...injuries. And how did the plane land? You planned it obviously. You know, if, if there's such a thing as a miracle, we experienced it. And but how did that affect your life after? I had to pretty much go back to work because I needed to run my business. My wife took a year out, my daughter took a year out. She suffered from acute um, uh, acute separation fears from me and my wife. She, meaning she didn't want to leave your side? No. She was too scared? Too scared, she didn't want to go to school. Of course. Yeah. You know, it's paid its toll on all of us. You know, we we had experiences and it had issues that affected my wife and it affected me. My issue was that I had to go back to work. I didn't have any time to convalesce. went but, back you know, to the office straight yeah, away. Yeah, and, and dealing in a tough market. You know, it was like um, 87 and then 88 was the, the big crash. So I had to think about how it was. It was a it was a, um, a really unpleasant experience for me. Having to do what I had to do, and but you know, like life, you, you you have no option. You have you have to be a provider. You have to be a father. You have to be a husband. You've Just got to do it. Or yeah. or everyone dissipates and just goes, and we just go each other's uh, go and do what we want to do, and not do it in the exactly the family.
0: Life happens, and you. I guess you just need to continue. And and I think talking about horrible things having. Lessons and, and positive implications, then on your life is, is a, good, a good thing to talk about, particularly at the moment while a lot of bad things are happening are happening, no. happening to people. And did you find a comfort in going back to the office straight away? No, no, not at all.
1: It? You know, everybody in Australia in retail wanted to know me the week I got back because I got a lot of publicity. Mm-hmm. And you can find that on, in all the newspaper cuttings uh, about this. Thing. Why it was so dramatic was because there was a six year old child. And the media love to write about six-year-old trial and seeing um, the, the issues that we were faced with. Mm-hmm. Um, and even there was a an article um, in the Sydney Morning Herald, I think th- six months ago, mm-hmm. five or six months ago, where they did an interview on my wife, my my daughter and myself. Uh, and there's a photo of the whole family. You might find that on 811 as well. Um, it was in the Sydney Morning Herald. And you... You'll see that when, when I came back from everybody wanted to know me um, and a week later people were saying, well, when are you coming to show us your new range of product? <laughs> because we need to get on, you know. The, the accidents happen now. You've got to, you know, get off your bike now and, mm-hmm. and get on your bike now and start showing us new product. And you did. I had no option.
0: Mm. And I guess how did the experience change your view
1: on life? For a long time I, I was very negative about life. Okay. I had uh, major issues. Um, I used to have a lot of um, a lot of um, nightmares about the accident. I tried to um, plant it somewhere, and I've always been quite good at that in my life. Um, but I'd have flashbacks continually, and um, I um, I had the opportunity to um, to sue the airline because the reason why this plane um, had this blowout was there was a small latch on the cargo door that had a fault and United Airlines and Boeing were given two years to fix these, this faulty latch. And, and they, they didn't. did 18 months into the two years they were given. Um, so I had issues about that and I, I thought, you know, I, I don't want to sue for, um, you know, on an airplane journey at the back of your ticket you'll see what airlines are liable for. And they're only liable for 150,000 max, mm. no, no death. Money to come out, Um, and I thought for 150, it's not worth even going through the trauma of having to relive it. So um, I forgot about it. I mean, I I had. How uh, did you get through it? How did you get past the pain?
0: How did you stop having the dreams? How did you move forward? I never did.
1: It was just ongoing all the time. It was always issues. Still to this day, not so much. You know, you learn to have other experiences. Got new issues. Yeah, (laughs) new like getting sick with my leg, Mm -hmm. Um, but. I, um, I didn't want to pursue – I had a lot of lawyers from America wanting to, um, to present… …and, and uh, put forward our case mm-hmm. in, to, in court. And I didn't want to. I just chased them. I was angry. I was very angry. I, you know, sort of almost got a bit vicious with a few people coming in to try and make me feel good… …about the fact that we nearly died. Um, yeah. ho- hoping that we wouldn't take legal action. Anyway, the day before the statute of limitations expired… Um, …which I think was seven years. A lawyer from Denver re- rang me up and said to me, um, uh, …today's the last day, you can lodge your claim on, on the airlines. I thought about it and I thought, yeah, yeah. Just do it. Just, just do it. Just Claim whatever you think we, we justify justified in getting. And he did. And then came the most interesting court case you could ever imagine. Um, it was my, It was wasn't class action, it was my family. ...against Boeing, against United Airlines and Boeing.
0: Oh, my God. So it wasn't a class action. It was your family person. That's
1: it. And we were first up in court as well. Wow. Um, and that's sort of a very interesting. Another thing that was disruptive for my business... ...and another reason why I, um, I uh, got it, other diversions like boxing... ...because I, I, just, I just needed to break out a bit. Um, so what happened was um, y- y- there's limited liability by the airlines... And the maximum you can sue is for 75000 unless you can prove willful neglect. If you can prove willful neglect you can go get punitive damages, whatever it might be, whatever the a jury decides. So it took about a year and a half of this procedure. We had uh, depositions um, at M- um We were hired by Boeing and United. They got all their, um, uh, all their top lawyers, young guys, mm-hmm. uh, associates. To come out to Australia to do a deposition on myself, my wife, and my daughter. Not my daughter. We wouldn't let her be interviewed, and that was really interesting. My wife was interviewed in a, in the a deposition for 13 hours Whoa. By, by these uh, lawyers from Perkins and Co. Perkins and Co. is a law firm in Seattle that's been representing um, Boeing since 1935. It's a big, established law firm, ultra conservative. When it came to me, I was really aggressive with these guys. They were quite scared. Um, Karate. So I was going to bash them. <laughs> and um, mine was nine hours, my wife's was 13 hours. And that made me more angry. And then we had a massive legal bill. So my lawyer. Because um, <laughs> he got had for,
0: a really big legal bill because he yeah. was going for so long. Yeah he,
1: was, yeah, he was. No, we did a contingency with him. Okay. So he would get 25% of, of anything that we achieved. But he pushed hard. He was a real cowboy, you
0: know? and so you can do that with lawyers. You can say, yeah. hey, "Listen, whatever you whatever you win in the case, you can take twenty five percent, but Either give way, us I mean, a lower rate."
1: Yeah, but I didn't pay anything. His, his fee, oh, was, okay. his fee was twenty five percent. And did
0: it work out for him? Absolutely. I oh, so you guys. You, so you we went,
1: So I, I, lost my earring in one one year through the decompressing compressing of the plane. My daughter um, had the most severe. Bursts of both her ears in Honolulu from the way the plane went into the um into a, a, a stall, um and she um was rushed into hospital at the moment. We arrived back and when well, we were all taken away, I had a broken arm, I had um, a loss of hearing. We were locked up in um, Honolulu in hospitals, whatever. So these things were big impacts on, on our lives. You can imagine it has to have a big impact. But the, <laughs> I I had a, a lawyer uh, um uh, a, a, E.N.T. specialist uh, Professor Gibson, who tried to fix my ear up, and I said, "Professor, you're going to help us in this law. come as a come as a um, a witness to to our injuries." And he said, "Absolutely." And then I had a psychiatrist for my daughter, I had a whole team GP that looked up, like, said, "Taking all of you guys to the court case was in San yeah, Francisco. Yeah, for proof, you had
0: them for proof as witnesses. Yeah, yeah witnesses. Sorry,
1: <laughs> the um, it was amazing. Everybody there. Uh, a, a jury that was selected um, was mostly black people mm-hmm. and old, old grandparents. So I think it was seven black guys and five, four or five um, Caucasians. Mm-hmm. And it was vicious. The Boeing really went after us, saying our lives they hadn't been destroyed and all the rest. Of that. And they they subpoenaed all my tech records to show that I was still flying. It was a very aggressive nasty thing. They were terrified that I was, not that I'd hit them because they would never do that, but they were, they were actually terrified what the damage was. Our case was the first one to be heard mm-hmm. and it would set precedence. For well, the, the rest.
0: And so they were trying to paint you out to be yeah. uh, the rich guy of, yeah. who's, still, who's still flying, like, oh, he's saying this is bad, but mm-hmm. look, he's still, he still has a good life and, and comparing yourself to perhaps some of the jury yeah. members that, that might be thinking, oh, He's still catching planes. Like, yeah. I never catch a plane. Yeah.
1: And they looked at my tax records and saw that I was earning more mm-hmm. seven years later than um, when, when and they And so they used that. that against you. Yeah. yeah. So, how can you say that your lives have been dis- disjointed and, and um, affected when you're earning more? You're flying twice a week or once a week to, Mel- to Melbourne? Which is sort of, I said, you know what, mate? Let a jury decide. Don't come to these law firms. Don't come and come with me with that nonsense. Anyway. um, we're all ready to go into court. The jury is sitting down and Boeing's lawyers came up to me on the steps of the Supreme Court in um, in San Francisco. Please. It's, a, it's a, a highly, it's it's one of the, high, it's the highest court.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and um, they said, we want to settle this case. So I said, I don't want to settle this case. I want to go to court. Everything. I'm like, yeah, why, why would I want to settle it? Let a jury decide what's it worth. And they made an offer, and we came down the stairs. And my lawyer, Susan, and myself thought about it. and We thought, you know what? The, 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 it was supposed to be the court case was supposed to be for two days, mm-hmm. and the judge says, no, we want to make it for four days. Um, so obviously, I realized it was going to be a really interesting case. And we settled it on the steps of the temple. And you know, it wasn't about money; it was about no. issues. It was about closure. Yeah. And I, 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 I needed it. My wife needed it. Uh, we needed to close this as a part of our life that, that, that happened, we either go and put a gun to our head and kill each other or, mm-hmm. or we survive and we work through it and we, we, we get a better life out of it.
0: And your wife, Susan. Susan, yeah. She, you said, she, I mean she's obviously been an incredible, an incredible figure in your life even from when you were young in that she, she was the reason you started, the, got into the, the rag trade. Yeah, and no doubt.
1: She's and been an amazing uh, assistant in helping me to achieve the goals that we did. We did it t- together. together. But, yeah.
0: it's a team. It was a team
1: effort. It, it was a team effort and that's what um, made it so interesting. I mean, we, we've been married now 40 years. Wow. So, you know, and we're st- we still married even though this virus is putting a bit of stress on us being on top of each other. <laughs> but, but, yeah, we've been married for 40 years and she, she's been a pillar of support, a great help. Um, as, a, as a guiding light to me uh, and to, to now have the benefits of, of leading a life where only ill health can affect us. Yes. Which, which is wonderful.
0: Just before we wrap up, um, the, the advice you'd have on having a life partner a wife or a husband um, throughout life, You know what's the what? What can you say about that? It makes it better. It makes it easier. I think that
1: I think that in business you can't fight with your wife who also wants to be CEO. Mm -hmm. You've got to know where your place is. Whether I should take a step down and you take over, Mm -hmm. or you let me take over and and make the final decisions, but heed your advice, but make the final decisions like we did in the sale of our business. And um, and unless you if you comply with those rules, then you stand in good chance. But we're both fighting to be CEO, and I say we should be selling that color. She says, No, you should be selling purple, not green. Um, and I think your price is, you know what? Just go away and leave me. Leave me alone. Mm-hmm. I'm not up to this sort of stuff. I never had that. Yes. She, she said, she, and also, I never relied on myself all the time because the girls that worked for me and Susan, Susan ran this art studio from, from my building. While so while you
0: were working, Susan had her own art studio. We had a
1: really big building in Arden Street. You know, yes. three, three three and a half acres. There, so we built a oh, big whoa. big shed uh, where all my distribution was run from. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then Su- Susan did all our designs. And because we were producing so many garments, the designs had to be prolific. So she, but she we, she was part of the team, mm-hmm. even though she ran a separate business.
0: And and so having that clear cut kind of uh, established. This is your section. This is my section. This is what positions. The yeah. positions were established. Helped uh, helps a marriage or a partnership.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's it's unless you have that that structure, um, and if you don't have the structure, you're going to end up getting divorced first and foremost. Yeah. You don't believe that um, you will make the right right achieve the right goals because you're arguing, you're fighting. We we, we never. Discuss things when we came up, mm-hmm. but we spent a lot of times discussing things in the, in the the other thing is if you, meet my, if, you meet, yeah, if you meet my wife she's the most endearing human being you've ever come across and she's incredibly intelligent uh, and she, um, she she's just wonderful she's a, she's been part, part of the success when uh, where my wife really came good was uh, when I, my leg was problem my, my leg was was seriously causing ill uh, to my body mm-hmm. and she Took me to the best surgeons. Nothing, nothing was too much. And, and we got through it.
0: Having that person there to catch you yeah, when you fall. And I get look, just to, to wrap up, I this has been one of the best conversations I've probably ever had in my life. But I think one thing that I've really taken from today is that life happens. Bad things happen in life. Life's not easy. But you can either keep moving forwards or you can stop and and and, and lose. Mm-hmm. And I think what you've done over and over again is even when you didn't want to do it, like when you mentioned after the plane you had to go back to the office, you kept moving forwards and because of that uh, you're in a a wonderful position now in life, your family is in a wonderful position and and, uh, of course the future of your family uh, I'm sure will be as well. And I guess is there one thing you'd like to leave the listeners with a, 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 a final thought or lesson?
1: I really hope that the people that I've met in the club and the the list of people that that are members of the club are more important now than anybody, any of us have experienced because when your world closes on you and you think, well, it's all over, who can help me, who can guide me, who can give me confidence to be able to get out of this mess and stuff, who can I learn from in terms of the experiences? As opposed to, uh, as to the experiences that they've got, um, and to the people that they're looking to, um, I think is extremely, extremely valuable. And I also believe that um, the what I've taken away from the club is I think the club is a, a conduit to survival. Why? Because everybody has got their own agenda. Some will be winning, some will be losing. But if there's an infrastructure out there that can help people and guide people to, to, to get through this period, um, then you, you'll see the benefits. Nothing is better than when you hit the wall and you say, well, what do I do now? Who do I speak to now? Uh, I can't talk to the bank about my business because they might forgo on, on me. So who do I speak to? You speak to one of the members of the board and through their networking of members in their club, I think they can be extremely helpful and give you the morale boost and the excitement. And the other thing about the club that I really appreciate is the fact that the, you don't just have a meeting with them and then it all goes quiet. They will follow that, mm-hmm. that connection. They'll follow that meeting um, that they first had and, uh, and, and show that they're there for you and, and use, the, the, use the connection to be a conduit to survival. Because right now it's all about survival. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's, that's it. Yeah.
0: I'm so happy to hear you say that and, and business owners are, of course, stronger together and I certainly feel stronger having you by my side right now. And
1: I'm happy to be around and happy to guide guide you if someone wants my advice and, and um, right now it's not looking for board fees or anything like that. It's just I have time, um, not a lot of time, but I have time for people that feel that what I've what I've achieved in life and what I've been through in life might help them to create the confidence uh, that they might need just to survive.
0: Thank you, sir. That is, that, thank you for everything. Pleasure. Thank you for your life and thank you for your lessons. Thanks, Danny. It's only a pleasure. I look forward to
1: helping you out whenever you need be.
0: Thank you. Listeners, I hope you uh, – I know you would have very much enjoyed that and um, uh, maybe sit down after and, and just take that conversation in once again. Um, and we'll see you in the next uh, next episode.